Welcome to Intuitive Warrior. Hey y'all, welcome to the podcast, welcome to 2024. You probably are wondering if I have a cold or if my voice just changed because I've done so few podcasts in 2023, and the answer is I am extremely congested. I'm dealing with the most bizarre, quote, column allergies. I'm hoping it's not cedar fever. Never had allergies in my life. I had a suspicion it was the Christmas tree, and I'm still holding on to that uh, hypothesis. But the Christmas tree's been out of the house a week now, and I still have this clothespin on my nose with no other symptoms, which is making me wonder if it's something more energetic, if I'm supposed to shed some belief. I've looked into something called German new medicine that says if you have congestion like this, then you are working through some sort of conflict. Uh, you're holding something. So, Hey, I'm treating it. I've got this incredible nasal spray called X clear with xylitol. And I got the red bottle called the max and it has been the most effective thing for this issue. So if you are congested or you have cedar fever, um, and you are really, if your symptoms are really limited to the nose, then this max X clear from Amazon is legit. It's been really a lifesaver between hot showers, hot saunas, and this spray. I am surviving. Thankfully, my mind is clear. I don't have a headache. I don't have a sore throat. I don't have any of that junk. It's just the nose. So bear with me here on my first podcast in 2024. Today's episode is with a really cool dude. His name is Dr. Michael Ruscio. And we recorded this show about six months ago. In fact, my next few episodes, because uh, the 2023 hiatus from this podcast was not overly planned. It just sort of happened and needed a break. So I've got some really solid shows that never aired. This one with Dr. Michael Ruscio. I've got Dr. Kirk Parsley. I've got a few other amazing people. Uh, lined up for you guys here as we kick off a, another new year. So I'm excited to bring you those. And on today's show, Dr. Michael Ruscio and I really, we talk about a lot, but we talk about the gut, we talk about probiotics. That's really his passion is working from the gut out. I guess you could say, start with the gut. Uh, he's done some really cool work with people. What I like about Dr. Michael Ruscio is that he's working with people. You know, this is kind of where our conversation starts. You know, this podcast begins, Dr. Michael's halfway through a sentence, and we're going to hit play on this podcast. Uh, but really what we're talking about is, you know, there's a lot of information out there these days. A lot of people are kind of getting ping pong balled around or, or really, you know, subscribing to a particular thought from a particular influencer, for instance, uh, that may be making an amazing case for whatever diet plan or strategy that they believe in most. But you know what I like about Dr. Michael Ruscio is he's broader than that. He's looking at the science. He's working with real people, you know, not just sort of looking at research as to, you know, what this diet should do. But, you know, I really, these days, I really look for people that are doing the work. They're not just reading research. They're not just uh, constantly supporting their own hypothesis, but they are in the trenches working with people day in, day out, finding solutions, 
and and creating an informed, broad-based approach. And that's and that's what Dr. Ruscio does. Um, you know, it's funny because these days, you know, it's so easy to become an expert. This has been applicable in my own life. You know, I've been looking for coaches myself in various areas of my life. And I've come to realize that you really need to look for somebody, not that has the credentials, not that, you know, that's not that has the right, you know, uh, gift of gab, uh, but somebody that has the life you want, you know? So, so for me, you know, when I've been looking for say a business coach, it's like, well, well, who's doing it, you know, who's doing it the way I want to do it. You know, who's got the, you know, the marks of success that I deem important, like a, you know, like a healthy family, a happy marriage, all of these things. Because if I take advice from, you know, a business coach, um, that, that isn't balancing that business with family, which is my top priority, then, then what am I doing? This might, this might drift me further. This advice might drift me further from my true calling, which is to be successful in the context of having a really happy family. So those types of maximization strategies, that's a little bit of a tangent, but, um, those types of maximization strategies are getting people in trouble because, you know, the, the all vegan diet or the all meat diet sounds great on Instagram, but is that person that you're subscribed to living the life you want or, or, um, uh, is the diet really the way you want to, to treat food? And I think sometimes we, we get caught in those sort of, uh, either reductionist or, or, or sort of tribalist or, or dogmatic approaches that it gets us in trouble. And Dr. Michael Ruscio is really helping people get away from all that and look at food for what it is, probiotics for what they are, uh, really explore the research in terms of, uh, well, what's actually true. And, and he offers some really neat perspectives on, on a lot of different elements of health, diet, uh, and perspective on this, on this episode. Uh, Dr. Ruscio, uh, was also a speaker at Rugga just a few months ago, which was fantastic. Having him on panels, having him give some talks. Uh, it was a really great, uh, fresh perspective to include at Rugga. So we were excited to bring him into the fold there. Uh, and hopefully we will be again this year with our fall event 2024 uh, stay tuned for that. If you're not on the Rugga email list, head on over to RuggaLife.com and subscribe and, and get updates. I think we're going to be doing a pre-sale, early bird, whatever you want to call it soon. So it's a really good opportunity to get into an event with us. Uh, all right. Now, hey, uh, before we dive into this podcast, I do want to send a warm shout out to Quicksilver Scientific. I am such a raving fan of these guys. I was a customer spending all kinds of money on their website, even before I was a ambassador, an affiliate, a promoter, a sponsored person, whatever you want to call me, um, because they make the best products. Even right now, I told you guys at the start of this intro, really hit the X clear, but that is being laid upon a foundation, of course, of all of my Quicksilver Scientific. I've been using their HistaAid because this is a histamine problem. They have a product specifically for that. I've been doubling down on the glutathione, liposomal under the tongue each morning, uh, knocking myself out with their CPD SP before bed, whatever you are looking for. They're getting into hormones now. My wife has been using some of their female hormones post-pregnancy, uh, post-birth. They've got everything, uh, whatever you're looking for. And most importantly, they are using something called nanoparticle technology, which means these nutrients are getting where they need to go reliably and consistently. Unlike a pill, unlike a powder that has to go through all sorts of digestion, 
these products, you put them under your tongue, you wait 30 seconds, and the capillaries in your mouth are sucking them right into the blood. Dr. Shea did a research study with B12, and within two minutes of taking a Quicksilver product, the B12 was noted in the blood. You're not going to get that with a powder or a capsule. So if you have got issues in particular, it is even a greater reason to consider liposomal. And right now, you can head on over to QuicksilverScientific.com and save 15% with code RUNGA. So go ahead and do that as you prepare. You buckle your seatbelt, you sit back, you relax, and you hang on tight for this episode with Dr. Michael Russo. The moments I want to pull my hair out when I see health influencers talk about a topic, I'm really seeing this fairly emergent trend that People can be good at persuasive conversation or building a narrative, but their thought process is, I think this, I find data that supports that, therefore it's true. And that filter of, let me sort of fact check to see if, even though this is appealing to me philosophically, I'm like a paleo guy, a keto guy, whatever, maybe there's actually pretty good evidence showing that that's not correct. That forces a, a re-sort of analysis of my worldview and makes my philosophy better. And when people don't do that, you end up getting hit with a lot of what we see in our consulting practice, which is people who don't eat any carbs. Let's say a woman, for example, she eats almost no carbs going really low carb because she's read all about how carbs cause diabetes and weight gain. Yet she's very fit. She's at a pretty healthy body weight. She's exercising a whole bunch and she can't figure out why she's depressed, fatigued and not sleeping. And it's because of that sort of runaway narrative, right? All carbs are bad and no one sort of fact checks. Well, I mean, that's kind of true if you're looking at processed food and overconsumption. But once you start disentangling that guilt by association, you don't have to be so dogmatic about diet or like seed oils is, is something that we're currently researching and seeing that same trend emerge. So sorry for the tangent and the monologue great. there, but- I mean, I think this is a perfect launch pad and we're already recording. So let's just go here. Uh, I yeah. think that the uh, I was I was just picking up on this. So there's a, I won't name any names, but there's a very uh, significant influencer, we'll say doctor in the space um, who who recently sent out his new updated nutritional philosophy and the updated uh, way he suggests that people eat. Totally fair. It's totally perfect. The only issue is it was about uh, – now he's recommending something like uh, no more than 30% fat in the diet. And just two years ago, I was tuned into this person, and it was full – I just wrote a boat – he had just wrote a, wrote a book on keto. It was no carbs, yeah. and we have personal friends that had, had talked about how anti-carbohydrate this person was. And so it's just this – there's this these rabbit holes that I think as an industry, and I think the social media game is is in part to blame. It's just, you know, we totally. can throw on an ice bath photo right now and get a million likes. If we throw on, you know, something else, it won't quite do as well. So there's these massive trends, but then there's the sort of uh, the people jumping on those bandwagons right in the book, but then they change their script. So anyways, as a launch pad for kind of what you were saying a minute ago, Doc, is just, uh, you know, what do, what do we do about that? It's a... Challenging problem to solve, right? Because I think a lot of it comes from YouTube, for example, has a very sort of recursive algorithm. And mm -hmm. so if you notice content works, you can double down on that content. 
And there being an audience for a message and that message being true are two different things. And this is a big challenge. And, and really, people who are more opinionated seem to be more rewarded because they can give you a really simple, non-nuanced, sometimes alarmist perspective. And why I take such issue with that is because when you work with people one-on-one -on -one in a consulting practice, A, and B, you're not telling people who don't do well from your recommendations that they're wrong, right? Because you see this sometimes too. Did gluten-free not work? Well, you must not be doing it hard enough, right? Did keto not work? Well, you probably got to get through the keto flu. Doc, it's been three months. I'm not sleeping. I feel like crap. Well, you're going to keto adapt eventually, right? And they just, they can't perceive of their philosophy being wrong. So the people that they burn go elsewhere, oftentimes to us. And those clinicians end up in this sort of, uh, you know, bubble, wherein they're not getting hit with stuff that's counter to their beliefs. So it's a big problem. And I think just having conversations like this is one of the ways to turn that tide. And there's a few rules I think we can distill it down to. Anytime someone has a very clear or sort of highly confident narrative on something, that's when I would be really, really cautious. Clear, confident, and also very sort of one-dimensional. You know, it's gotta be keto and when you ask them a question like, well, does keto work for everyone? They kind of give you a, a hand wavy. Well, yeah, maybe there's some people, but really everyone's got to be do doing keto. That's kind of the subtext that you get. Mm -hmm. When you hear things like that, that's usually a red flag that the person has drank the Kool-Aid of, of the philosophy that they're party to. And they're probably trying to help people. And this is the thing that also makes it challenging. It's this almost uh, benevolent ignorance, right? They have good intentions. They think they're doing the good, the good thing, but they're really not. And so they come across genuine but again, you can be sincere and you can be sincerely wrong. Right, right on. And and of course, you know, there's the 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 folks that 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 are not left in the wake of the content, the people that that do get results, right? So, you know, those are the ones that are right. that are keeping those, you know, boats afloat. And, you know, there's nothing yep. wrong with that. Again, it's like if you're, you know, I think of this in terms of uh like basic training, right? If you look at like old school basic training in the military, like 20% of the guys have horrible shoulder injuries. You know, they just, you know, especially if you look back in the decades is like millions of push-ups and sit-ups and all of these exercises that, you know, without balance and without hitting the opposing muscle groups and things like that, these right. things become counterintuitive, but there's this, there's this forging of this, the person that survives that like completely imbalanced mm. program is, is bitter, is faster, is stronger, knows how to like put one foot in front point. of the other. But yeah, there was 20 or 25% of the soldiers that didn't survive basic training without a catastrophic injury. And now they're, they're, they're at home, you know, not, sure. not contributing. Sure. So, and we can maybe take seed oils as a, a modern day example of that, because this is something that we're currently researching and there's, there's a, a research arc or, or a thought arc, right? I start with the philosophy kind of to come back to the epistemology philosophically, I lean much more in the ancestral direction, meaning the stuff that we could hunt, fish, forage, the way we lived our lives in accordance with the circadian rhythm, time in nature, time with friends, not being overly hygienic, all of those principles, I'm on board. But it's not to say all of those principles fully map on to modern day. So we have to have that starting framework with some flexibility built in wherein we're willing to question if everything philosophically in that cropping makes sense. And so seed oils at knee jerk, you would say, well, 
and, and this is where some of the tropes come in. They're processed, they're a byproduct of industrial food production. And then usually what happens is, right, you start with those points, understandable. Then you weave in a couple uh, either mechanisms or observations that sound compelling, but are actually specious. They contain hexane, a byproduct of the processing. They used to be used to lubricate machines or they're, you know, that's how they first started it. And so it was just this thing where they had all this oil sitting around from machine lubrication and also they're high in omega-6 and we know how bad omega-6 is. And all those things, at least in theory, could be a problem. But there has to be this next step of let me fact check myself to make sure I'm not full of BS and be willing to entertain that I might be wrong or something here may, may be wrong. And so the next step should be, well, let's look at, is there any good data examining people with higher intake of seed oil versus let's say higher intake of, of butter, saturated fat from uh, lard, let's say, is there any difference in health outcomes? And when you do that, you see, huh, there's actually not a difference in health outcomes between these two groups. In fact, there's more of a deleterious effect when people overconsume saturated fat and animal fats, then there is seed oils. <gasps> but wait, that's totally dissonant with the paleo philosophy. Well, probably not, because if you think a little bit further through this, you realize that modern day food agriculture practices lead many animals to have a higher level of saturated fat or just fat in general. And so we can reconcile this by saying, and this is what the data also support when you look at diabetes, heart disease, cancer, metabolic diseases, that if you can limit your fat from saturated fat to seven to 10% of calories, you can eat the animal fats and you can do all the stuff that I think is an important part of the diet, butter, eggs, whatever. But there's a confine and that confine is introduced because our food supply has changed. So it doesn't mean you can eat paleo with no strings attached. You have to factor in this one nuance, which is a limitation of how much of your total fat you're getting from these foods. And so you can still have the ancestral framework, but you modify it slightly because we are not going out and eating deer, right? That we're just wild and running all the time and not eating that much and eating grass. You know, even, even food that we aim for high quality is still going to be probably a little bit different in its fat content. And we didn't have to hunt it. You know? So there's, yeah. there's a certain like, you know, what's coming through for me is that, you know, uh, obviously our, our lifestyles and our activity levels and our vitamin D levels and, and our time spent with our bare feet on the earth, just all of the elements of a healthy human being that we're kind of calling biohacking these days used to exist more naturally, but also doc, what, what implication, you know, we live in a society where two thirds of our population is obese, right? So Right. Wouldn't the research study as well just, you know, just take a guess, two thirds of the people in the study are metabolically deranged. Does that have any sort of implication here in terms of if someone is already sick, does the fat matter less because they're already sick? And if they were healthy, if they were if, in caveman shape and they were hunting their food, would we see a different outcome in terms of that research you mentioned? Yeah, I mean, there there are some studies that that have at least control for part of your question, which is controlling for total caloric intake. And you know, because what we could say there is maybe it's just the overeating, which is a problem. And I would say 
the overeating reconciles most of these issues that we're contending with, right? If people just get their caloric consumption to where it should be, most of this stuff goes away. But even within some of those data where they control for caloric intake, there does seem to be some issue when total saturated fat gets above seven to 10%. Um, but to your point, right, that might be an increase. And I'm just putting out an arbitrary number here. It might be an increased risk of 5%, which could be fully negated if someone exercises. But then it comes back to the point that I'm the bigger point I'm trying to make it, which is we don't have to be so neurotic about diet. If we're doing all of the healthy pillar activities, just like you're saying, right? Time and nature, adequate sun, community, exercise, not overeating, not overconsuming, then you don't have to berate the waiter when you're at dinner about, well, is this steak cooked in seed oils, which is something that's happened with some of my friends. And I think, again, it comes from a good place, but I think it comes from a place of having that root philosophy without doing any fact checking to see, do we have to be that ardent about exposure or consumption of seed oils? Yeah. And I, and I love where you're kind of leading us. And I've kind of, I've kind of hypothesized before that like diet and health or, or nutrition, I should say, and choosing what we put on our plate. It's, I, I, I say this carefully, but like, it's not the most important thing to determine our health, but it's the thing that we have the most control over. And it also, in some cases can sort of be, be a little bit of a, not a, I don't want to use the word scapegoat, but like, it's harder for me to like commit to exercising every day. It's harder for me to, to look at myself in the mirror and, and combat whatever those root causes are, those things that I'm running and right. hiding from that shadow work or whatever we want to call it. Uh, it's easier for me to just try a diet and then be able to say the diet didn't work or, or what have you. So in other words, sure. a lot of the energy we put into nutrition, it's because oftentimes it's the lowest hanging fruit, no pun intended. It's the easiest place to hedge. I don't know. What do you, what do you think on that? Yeah, no, I know. I would agree with that. Uh, and I would add to that, that with most of these interventions, there's a law of diminishing return, right? You, you start making some changes to your diet. You get a lot of benefit. Once you start getting so incredibly nuanced with all the minutia, I see a lot of people end up getting less healthy because now what ends up happening, kind of riffing off your point, they become psychosocially impaired. They're always, you know, stressed about diet when they go out to eat is there gluten in here is there nightshade in here is there uh, seed oil in here and sure some people do have very specific food triggers that they notice are a problem but if there is a food trigger issue it's usually very repeatable and consistent and i'll give you my personal example on this i don't do well with red nightshades you know peppers tomatoes and routinely repeatedly every time 24 hours later I'll have either low back pain or neck pain. And we know this. We know that some people have food reactive arthritis with nightshades. So I can do some, but and I'm not overly anal about it, right? If I go out to dinner and there's some amazing dish everyone's raving about that's using paprika, sure. Okay, and I'll have a little bit of an annoying neck pain the next day. I know where it comes from, not a big deal. But what I see happening in a lot of people, they read all the messaging lectins, FODMAP, histamine, gluten, dairy, seed oils. And now they, they're in this sort of dietary prison where every time they eat, or a lot of the times they eat, there's fear and there's worry. They reclude from certain social activities, which I would argue people are way more deficient in than issues with their food. 
And they end up really just seeing the, their quality of life diminish because they've gone over that cusp of diminishing return from optimizing for diet. Wow. I love perfectly articulated. And I think of this a lot as well in terms of kids, right? Like I've got two kids now under three, my three-year-old, we keep him on, he's on an unbelievably strict diet. Like he, and I, when I say strict, I actually mean organic and he can eat basically anything he wants, but it's, yeah. you're putting food, in front of him really healthy stuff, the food strict quality. Right. Yeah. He's, I mean, yeah. his diet is, he's so blessed. Maybe intentional would be a better way of describing that. You're, you have on a very intentional diet. Very intentional diet. So I think that's he, important, not, not to cut up your train of thought, but I yeah. think it's important because there is evidence showing that, and it's for the parents out there, kids who are put on restrictive diets have a much higher prevalence of eating disorder in adulthood. And so when we consult with children, it's always very loose. And sometimes we'll have a sort of side conversation with the parents, like, hey, you got to tread lightly here because the last thing we want to do is lead to one of two outcomes, which can happen. The, the, the food disordered eating, like I just mentioned, or kids who go, well, F it and just rebel. And then they totally start eating crap all the time because they're so tired of being sort of forced into this, you know, perverse way of thinking about food. Right on. And, and gosh, man, I was an eighties baby and, you know, grew up in the nineties. I have an older sister who was in high school and she was really into the food pyramid and it kind of our family. So what I'm saying is right. to parents, you might also be wrong. <laughs> so for mm. me as a kid, I was allowed to eat Skittles <laughs> because there was no fat. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. Like, you know, it's just right. like, you might be wrong. Um, so, so there, there was an interesting story and I, I w I'm excited to share this with you. It's the way that I've kind of raised my son, my son, Leon's, uh, his diet has been just such a, a passion of mine. I put so much work and effort into it and time and consciousness Love and it. intention. Um, funny, quick story. He just started school. He's been at home. He's three now he's been at home the whole time. We now have another baby. So we found this great little Montessori thing down the road, but you know, nutritionally oh, they're, they're not totally in gear just on the nutritional side. And, uh, they gave him, uh, craisins and something else like whatever those fake cranberry raisin thing. He just started throwing up like immediately. And he has mm. had, he has had this fully organic, you know, like I can't even imagine the amount of like glyphosate and garbage in those foods. And we were like, you know what? They're going to, we know they're going to give them a few things, but like the benefit of maybe having them in some sort of structural school program with other kids and maybe it'll be worth right. the craisins. Turns out Absolutely. it wasn't. Turns out it wasn't because now we're sort of like, well, he's going to, you know, I don't want to condition his body. We're going to try to make a modification there. But the story I wanted to share was, a few months back, we were at a, um, there was this little festival thing. It was at this brewery down the road and there was live music. And, and my son walks by this little girl who has a pizza from this food truck. And he's like, his eyes just like lit up and he says, daddy, she, <laughs> she has a pizza. And I said, I, I felt it come through. And I said, Leon, do you want a pizza, bud? the joy like the, the he he just absolutely exploded and he enjoyed that pizza that i got him off yeah. this food truck there was right. so much joy and it was such a special occasion so as a parent i'm not willing to send my kid to a school where he's going to eat garbage day in day out completely mess up his you know his 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 chemical centers and his brain with this junk food 
but on occasion when there's there's a festival and there's joy and there's friendships and family and abundance it's like hell yeah like have a piece of pizza totally totally on board and you know as you're saying that i am reminded of this example you know early in my career and when you're early in your career you're you're trying to do better with your career right you're trying to get your ideas out there be perceived as credible make alliances with other people in the field that you respect and there was this uh, colleague of mine who I knew from college onward. And one of the things I noticed was due to the fact that I think he had a, a somewhat impaired upbringing where his parents kept him so, so healthy all the time, he just wasn't fun. <laughs> and what I noticed was I could go to a conference and then go get a few beers or whatever after the conference with thought leader XYZ and forge friendships because I had more dimension, right? I wasn't just, well, health and well, you can't be up too late. Can't have any drinks. Don't have any funny stories to tell you because I've never done anything fun myself. And it's not to say everything fun centers around drinking and, and you know debauchery, but I think a sliver of that is good for the soul. Absolutely. I can tell you that I've had a handful of belly laughs until I'm crying incidences doing stuff like that, a bachelor party or whatever. So Another way of looking at it would be you might impede their social development, which carries through to their entire life, if you're not allowing them to have those opportunities to have the pizza or to do whatever, right? You want to raise kids who can be fun. I, I love that. And I, I'll share that, you know, I, I think oftentimes, so I've, you know, I've now been a, a coach of some sort for the last 20 years, I've really started with fitness and then got into holistic health and now a little bit more of the wellness, mindfulness, meditation side. Uh, but today when I... When I write a strength and conditioning program, I've noticed that it actually looks a lot like the ones I wrote in the first four or five years of my career. <laughs> right. And in the middle is when I was a little lost, the, the smarter I got. And I thought I couldn't have someone do a squad if their hip internal rotation didn't achieve this yeah. measurement. And, and I was getting so lost in the details and the, you know, that paralysis by analysis. And now I'm like, okay, no, it's like, you know, we're going to come back to, to where we were. And now I could speak for an hour about why I chose that exercise instead of 30 seconds, maybe as I would have 20 years ago, but there's sure. an interesting sort of phenomenon there. Uh, and then I wanted to share just real fast many years ago, gosh, it's, um, maybe 10 or 11 years ago, when I first met Ben Greenfield, who's a good friend of mine now. And when we first met, we were at the Ancestral Health Symposium and it was in uh, Berkeley. And I was in the thick of it, right? Like I was, you know, far enough into my career that I was starting to get that paralysis around nutrition and health and everything else. And we're at the Ancestral Health Symposium and Ben is there and Rob Wolf is there and Tim Ferriss was there. And, um, Paul Jaminet, you know, who I haven't heard his name in a while, but he wrote the perfect health diet mm, back then. Sure, sure. Uh, yep. And he was really harping on red, or not red light, but, but um, uh, white light, but bright lights um, and how bad they were. And after this ancestral health symposium, I expect that, you know, we're all going to be in bed by nine o'clock. We're going to avoid lights. And then I get a text. <laughs> I get I a text from yeah. Ben. And it's like, hey, all the cool kids are out at, you know, this, this bar and I go and everyone's Sounds very got... much like a, a greenfield text. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All the cool cats are at this place. And so I show up and all these people, all these characters that I expected were about to go to bed at 9 p.m. Just like me, they've got a cocktail. They're having a good time. They got appetizers in front of them. We ended up be out till we were out till, you know, 12 or one o'clock. And this was the best right. is. 
the last piece of this story that was so hilarious was I come back to, we were staying in the dormitories at Berkeley. Like we were students yeah. this was in the summer. So weird. And so like, it, it was just bizarre, right? In retrospect, like, anyway, I'm walking into my dorm and Paul Jaminet, who's this guy that had been harping about white light and how terrible it is for us all day at the symposium, not to throw him under the bus, but like I walk into the dorm, his door is open to his dorm room. And he's on the computer at one o'clock in the morning with, with, with the screen up and the light on and everything else. And it was so liberating. It was so liberating. Yeah. Like, gosh, we can, we can be professional. We can be educated. We can be smart. We can also live and kind of let go sometimes and just, you know, sure, be balanced. I love the story. No, it, it, that's an awesome story. And I, I think it's really important to share stories like that because I, I have observed that people will think, health educators, just like you're saying, are doing everything perfect. And then they put themselves in this box and they don't have any fun. And the way I look at this, there's one analogy, which is the health bank account analogy, which I think has saliency, right? You're putting a lot of deposits into the bank, but you got to have some withdrawals sometime. You got to, right? If you just save, 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 and you never spend any money on anything, your life's going to be boring. I mean, you'll die rich with no stories, very few smiles, <laughs> but a lot of money in the bank account, right? Yeah. So there's a balance there. And yes, I'm fully with you. Personally, the way I look at this is I want to invest, make those deposits in my health so that when we have those opportunities, I can show up and be fun, energetic, and really be vital and be present because I think we've all been on the opposite side of that where you go to a social function and you're saying, man, I'm, I'm kind of struggling. My mind's kind of slow. I, I don't feel like I want to be here. And that sucks. It really sucks when you want to feel vital and present and, and connect and you can't. So I think we want to make those deposits to be able to then have the vitality to enjoy those experiences. And as long as we're not doing that, you know, three days a week, every week and, and running into some debt because we're withdrawing so much, then I would say that's going to be a net positive and, and what you want to aim for. So yeah, I, I love that story. Fully agree. Yeah, I love that. And it's, it's, and I would ask you, doc, is the, uh, the, if I'm at home um, or, or let's say I do go out, I want to get into the, the mental, emotional self-judgment effect on the gut. So in other words, if you are mm. actually enjoying yourself, like what is the gut doing as opposed to if I'm like, I can't yeah. believe I'm doing this, I'm doing it. Here it goes. The, you know, the nacho chip, whatever, you know, in terms of like, yeah. if we're, if we're present and we're truly in a state of uh, enjoyment and community and belonging, you know, we see the blue zones. We know that sitting with a table full of people and, and, and enjoying a meal together is, is sacred and so healthy right. and it's associated with longevity. But none of those people in the blue zones, no one in Sardinia is like, I can't believe I'm having more carbohydrate right now. I, you know, right. so, so what is that? Like the mental judgment or the mental preoccupation with food? How does that like detract from our gut health and our enjoyment of our, of our life basically? Sure. No, I mean, it, it's a great question. And really this year, you've seen some really fascinating papers published on this where they're looking at functional MRIs and how those change when people do things like take a walk in nature or try to solve a hard math problem or use a probiotic. And essentially what, what we're discovering is this area in the brain known as a limbic system, right? It's the thalamus, hypothalamus, amygdala, um, 
it governs fear and also memory. Now, you want to be able to tag events as fearful for survival, right? And, and one of the examples that I use is as a hunter-gatherer, let's say you and your buddy are out for a walk. He grabs some berries out of this bush, and then you watch him throw up, have diarrhea, and die. It's like, ooh, okay. Limbic system, you really need to sear those berries into my mind so that I yeah. never forget those berries. Yeah. So the limbic system is our friend in that regard. But in modern day, when we start associating fear incorrectly to certain foods, what can end up happening, and, and we know this from comparative functional MRI brain scans, is that the amygdala and the limbic system get overactive. And that correlates with depression, with anxiety. But here's the real kicker. It also correlates with people that have blood that's more pro-inflammatory, meaning it's more prone to react to foods, to pollen, to mold, to perfumes. So when you're not able to be present and to enjoy your food, and when you're really hyper-analytical about all the bad things food can do, your limbic system can start to go onto overdrive. And this can actually start making you more reactive. And it's almost this psychosomatization where the brain can literally start causing disease because it's turning up your immune system. And now it's starting to react to a lot of foods. And this is where inflammation comes from as a byproduct of that reactivity. So the good news here is there are things that you can do to start unwinding that, which are totally in line with the conversation that we've been having. Going for a walk in nature, they have shown a dramatic drop-off in amygdala activation when people just go for a walk in nature. And follow-up studies have asked the question, does it have to be like the redwoods in California, immaculate nature, or could it be a park, You know, something more accessible? The answer is yes, right? Any nature scape, even a park works, a beach, a pond. Um, so one of the things people can do if they're struggling with I guess, letting go, right? That like hyper control impulse on their health. Go for a walk in nature is one thing. And then also like you're intonating, eating with people or being with people. We also know this has a very health and longevity promoting action. So we know that being anxious, afraid, fearful can literally start making you sick. So we want to reframe the way we look at food. And this is part of the reason also that I'm so passionate about the messaging that we opened up with, which is not just enamoring people with all this fearful messaging about food, because you could take an otherwise healthy person and then make them sick inadvertently. And this is, again, a lot of what we see at the clinic. Um, so I'm partially answering your question there. I, I know I drifted a little bit, but um, this is where things like reducing health research, getting outside, spending time in nature and being with friends can all move you in the right direction, less inflammatory, healthier limbic system, healthier person, longer lifespan. And it's really simple. The challenge I think is when you're trying to optimize for your health, you want information, right? So you go to podcasts and to blogs, but it can be a really slippery slope when, you know, and it's probably just this recurring theme of the law of diminishing returns. You start doing some health research, you learn some of the things to do good, then you start getting too analytical, too detailed, and that's when you can start going the other way.
it, gosh, it makes, it makes total sense. And, and yeah, and that's the information is so abundant right now that we can often sort of, you know, we become a bit of a ping pong ball. I mean, even this podcast next week, I could interview a doc that loves keto diet and, and all, you know, there's like this, um, it's just, it's just kind of the game, but you know, another element, and actually I wanted to mention, I remember seeing a, a research study. This was quite a while ago, but just painting the walls green improves emotional health. Like if, if somebody is in a mm. in the suffering from depression and they're in the room I'm in right now, right. We just moved into this house. I don't even have much on the walls. If I just painted this place green, my emotional health would improve. So it doesn't have to be the immaculate forest. The other thing I wanted to uh, bring up, and I hope I don't butcher this, but it's when, you know, my wife in her mindfulness talks often says it's when we are lost, we run faster. And mm-hmm. I think your your example with the guy who ate the berry, and I remember um, there was a, a social media meme that was like, you know, kudos to the pa- cavemen that figured out what mushrooms were uh, good and which ones were bad, you know, and it has this like, you know, three part thing where it's like that one killed Fred, this one, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> I met right. God on that one. And then this one over here is delicious. What I want to say is that there's a, this primal part of the brain as well. It's a little bit like when we, when we, when we are afraid and we activate that fear response, we are lost and we run faster. Meaning we're often, we often make choices to avoid that thing that are actually worse than the thing. And, you know, the part of the, the part of the brain that I've, I've, uh, I've heard about around this is like the guy that ate the berry and was poisoned and died. If you, if you were exposed to that, it means it happened in your community, in your primal village, in your cave. And now Mm. it's like you're on social media. So in other words, the, the best example is probably it's a little unrelated, but like you hear about a plane crash in, in Japan, and so you decide to drive all the way to California from Texas instead of taking a plane when that is far more right. dangerous. So there's this like yep. you're running and hide from seed oils and you end up, you know, not enjoying yourself or, or eating something that's even worse. And I, maybe this isn't the most articulate yep. story, but it's like the brain no, I'm, I'm tracking. You get yeah. like, you know, oftentimes we're, we're just lost and we're we're kind of a ping pong ball, I guess. Yeah. And this well, this also comes back to our earlier conversation about algorithms and we know that they tend to reward more sensational claims right and so i just think people need to know that so they can filter appropriately and and that filter could be just imposing restrictions on how much device or computer or research time sound familiar do it with kids really good for them same rules apply to adults right Uh, and even though you think you're doing something so good having some sort of ceiling to prevent yourself from spending too much time reading or listening or watching about how foods are bad or how EMF is bad is really helpful because if you fill that void with people and hobbies and things like this, that will keep you, I think, at the at the right level of balance. And then also the filter would be just be on the lookout for indicators that someone's dogmatic, right? If they're really confident, if there's no nuance, um, if they don't cite specific data information, and this is one, uh, and I don't know if as a scientist, nerd, and clinician, this only makes sense to me, but you want to be looking for people who cite outcome data, 
because this is what I've seen to be the most sort of pernicious and specious technique that's used. And probably inadvertently, probably by people who are trying to help and think they're on the right side of an argument, but they can be wrong nonetheless, is they're telling you the story about why the thing is bad, or hexane in the seed oils as one example. And you can talk all about hexane and how bad it is, but then you've got to say, do people who consume more seed oils as compared to people who consume less, is there a difference in outcomes, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, et cetera? And it can't be a vague, well, you know, people in industrialized countries have more of these diseases and they eat more seed oils. Therefore, it's the seed oils, right? Because that that loose inferential logic vilified eggs, cholesterol, animal protein. You can vilify almost anything by that logic. You have to look for something that's a bit more controlled. And that's where if you follow someone's argument, they'll probably say something like a randomized control trial or a large observational study compared these two groups and what they found was X. And oh, by the way, they also controlled for things like socioeconomic status, exercise, smoking status, because we want to be careful about what's known as the healthy user bias, because this can also be an issue. And this is where I think some of the vilification of animal protein came from. People in westernized countries could eat more of it. And if you did lazy controlling for the confounding variables, you didn't see that the people who had more access to protein also had more access to calories in total, to smoking, maybe weren't exercising as much, right? So confounding variables, we also want to account for. And it's just these sort of things you want to be looking for the educator using as part of their argument and be careful not to fall into a really compelling sounding narrative that just uses scary words like hexane and industrial and makes sort of broad sweeping claims. If you look for those details in the argument someone makes, that usually means that person cares a lot about sort of fact checking into the details and being responsible with the conclusion that they offer up to you. That. And I think on the sort of personal intuitive side, it's like, be super honest with yourself if you do change your diet and there's a negative effect, just like you mentioned with the paprika, you know, my neck hurts Absolutely. after I eat, eat paprika. There was a, um, you know, I actually, I think Rich Roll is a fantastic podcaster. He's amazing. His interviews are just, he's great. However, he's, a, he's a massive proponent of the vegan diet. Like he, he, he's very vocal about this is the way to eat. This is the healthiest thing. And he literally said on his podcast that he has diarrhea six times a day. Like <laughs> it's, it's uh, so there's this, yeah. you know, with my coaching clients, I always, you know, I, I bring it back to like, if you make a change, it's like, how do you feel? I'm curious on your thoughts on this doc. How do you feel? And sometimes, you know, if there's a lot of momentum coming off the dogmatic Instagram content, you can, you know, suddenly eat a stick of butter and feel fantastic. But then how do you, how do you sleep? Yeah. And how do you poop? Like, yeah, I mean, you want to, you want to take a net appraisal yeah. of how you feel. And we yeah. use this axiom in our consulting practice, which is your body is boss. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have a hypothesis. Maybe Mary Sue is too low carb. We're going to run an experiment. We'll have you up your carbs to, let's say roughly 150 to 175 grams per day. And then we're going to listen to your body. And what we're looking for is a net change across your symptoms. So you do maybe a two or three week look back. Are you generally sleeping better? Do you have less hair falling? Do you have a better mood? Do you have better vigor when you're exercising? Do you have better energy during the day? 
And you're not always going to see home runs where it's like, holy shit, I feel fantastic. But what you're looking for is a significant signal. And usually you get one of three, one of four things, a home run, those happen, they're more rare, a clear improvement, not a home run, but clear improvement, nothing, or they feel worse. It's usually how these sort of break down. And then from there, you either continue doing what you were doing, meaning if you feel better or a home run, great. That means Mary Sue probably was too low carb and she needs more carbs. If you feel the same, that tells us, guess you don't have to worry about carbs, right? You can, you feel the same higher or lower. So if you're tired of eating keto or low carb, you can open things up a bit. If you feel worse, like the person who goes vegetarian and has diarrhea all the time, that may tell us that this isn't good for your system. And so let's try a different hypothesis with another experiment, listen to your body. And you, you do this a few times through, and that's when you figure out what works for the individual. And that's, again, what we really do mostly is just try to reduce variables and then listen to the person's biofeedback. And that tells us if we're on the right track. So I'm fully on the same page as you. Yeah. I love that. And, you know, I had, I had one of these home runs where I was, I was keto for quite some time, um, off and on for, for many years, I had a, a really bad head injury. And so I was actually put on a keto diet in 2007. It wasn't called the keto. It was called the epilepsy diet then. Mm, sure. Um, but I kind of, I kind of went back and forth with it. But anyways, I do, I do my bike, my, I got the fan bike in the garage. I do this thing every morning. Uh, brutal. I, I get in the cold, but like, as I, you know, when I became a father, especially once my son was two and a half years old and started to really eat, you know, a, a broader sort of scope of food, like I became like this garbage disposal, right? Like, it's just like, oh, there's a banana right there. Oh, there's like this and that. And I noticed many, many days when he would wake up and he would have, say, his yogurt and maybe a banana or some berries or whatever. Uh, and I was not eating until noon, right? But I do the bike every morning and I do between 300 and 350 calories. I noticed that when I would eat his leftover yogurt and banana or and berries, whatever it was, as opposed to going in, my it went to like 400, 415, 420. So I got this like 30% improvement in performance yeah. just from going with 120 calories in my stomach instead of zero. Um, so that was one of those, one of those sort of wake up call moments. I actually wanted to tell you, I meant to tell you about 20 minutes ago, the way that I began teaching my son how to eat. And I'm curious on your thoughts on this is I would basically make a clock plate and I would put like a a bunch of avocado or guac or whatever, right here. I would put chicken here. I would maybe put like a little like egg right here. I would put carrots right here. I put apples right here and I would just watch him. And what I noticed, and, and I, this gets into this hypothesis I've had, because when we look at, say, a ancestral diet, we say, well, you know, the tribes living in such and such a place eat 25 to 30% protein. So that's what we should eat, which means we should have three meals a day at 25 grams of protein and da, 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 whatever it is. He would not operate that way. So he would eat like all the carbs for three, four days, and then all protein for two, three days. There was this really, Hmm. it wasn't like, it wasn't like he was eating like a balanced diet. It was balanced. If you looked at a month, 
and you look back right. on it, it's like, wow, it's perfectly balanced. It's like 30% protein. It's, it's 50%, but it wasn't like meal to meal. It was generally, he would go all in on like one or two foods. Sure. Sure. I mean, that's really interesting. And the first thing that resounds through my mind is maybe this is more just speculatively here, but in alignment with how we would eat as hunter gatherers, right? There's a kill, you got a bunch of protein. There's a big forage, you got a bunch of carbs and sort of having this cycling between the two, because it does make sense to me that people wouldn't have a perfectly balanced meal at every <laughs> sitting as a hunter gatherer. Right. I mean, you have to have your operation really dialed in, <laughs> right? I want yeah. some vegetables. I want some carbs. I want some protein. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think and that makes a lot of sense. Live in San Diego. Also, <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, just a very narrow band yeah, can, can yeah. achieve that. Um, but, and also, uh, I'm reminded of Don uh, Lehman's uh, interviews I've seen on protein optimization and essentially commenting that the intake of protein being so consistent really matters more the older you get because you're less anabolic. The older you get, the more anabolic resistant you become. So the more important it is to be diligent about the spacing and, and the distribution of protein. But when you're young, you're just so anabolic you're going to grow even in spite of maybe a lot of headwinds nutritionally. It's not to say, you know, blow it off, but I think it's just, it's less of a factor for kids, the protein specifically that is. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point too, because, you know, I used to work my, when I started my career, I used to work with high school athletes and hmm. these kids, <laughs> you know, they're just unbelievable. And I, you know, I had my, um, my nutritional, you know, holistic health hat on. So I would set these minimums like, Hey, you got to have at least like a hundred grams of protein a day from a good source. You got to have at the time, it was like a handful of organic raw nuts. It was, uh, three handfuls of greens. You know, I had these like really simple things outside of which, ice cream, pizza, it's all fair game because these kids, they were so, I mean, they're, they're working out in the gym five hours a week. They got five hours a week of practice or more. They go to school. It's like, and they were, they were, they were so anabolic. They could, they could eat whatever they want. And there became this, like, there became this, like the, they could hit their nutrition with 700 calories, but their caloric needs were so high that like, Pizza was almost the only way to do it with some of these like high school athletes that are just, you know, so active. Sure. I mean, I remember those days. I remember my father telling me stories about my brother and I would just put down a ridiculous amount of food. And I mean, um, again, I'm just speculating here, but I would imagine that I would not have felt as good if it was just sort of low carb paleo, specifically low carb, right? It's just like vegetables and protein. You know, I, I probably would have been tired and it's like oh you know mike's doing pretty good but he complains he's not sleeping well he gets kind of moody and this is again where i think just being too idealistic nutritionally can come back to bite you yeah yeah absolutely um well hey let's get into i want to talk about probiotics with you i know it's a big part of of what you do and i'm curious based on this conversation like when is the proper time to introduce that, introduce probiotics? What, what types of probiotics do you use with folks? Because, you know, you talked about the client that, you know, we're going to assess and we're going to see if we hit a home run or if there was no change. Um, when we shift a diet, do we, do we start a, a supplementation protocol at the same time? Or how do you generally work with folks around probiotics and, and yeah, dietary supplements? I mean, there's, there's different ways you can do it. It kind of depends on where someone's coming from. Mm-hmm. If someone's coming from standard American diet, we're probably not going to use any supplements or, or quite minimal. 
just because we know getting them on some healthy diet is very likely going to be a home run. It doesn't really matter if it's, if it's paleo, if it's Mediterranean, just getting their food quality better, super low hanging fruit in that case. What we end up seeing is people who've, and this is part of our paperwork, we have a table. Have you done paleo, keto, carnivore, low carb, low FODMAP, low histamine? Because that's the people we tend to see are the people who've done a lot of research and are really well read. And so we can learn a lot just by looking at that. And we'll use that oftentimes as a starting point. As a quick example, I, I used Mary Sue earlier. You So it's the diets you've done, neutral, um, beneficial, or a negative reaction with a little area for comments. And we might see keto and low carb didn't sleep well fatigued. And it's like, okay, that's that's a breadcrumb trail to a hypothesis that might be you could be too low carb. So in this case, just reading from her paperwork, we may want to start them by upping the intake of carbs and not really worry about probiotics. And and you might see something, and I'm working my way to the probiotics, but I just want to yeah. put these few things out there because they're, they're common and, and I think will probably help some people. You might see kind of the Rick Roll scenario where someone says, you know, the healthier I eat, the worse I feel. If I load up on fruits and veggies, I have diarrhea or I'm constipated or I'm bloated, I have reflux. And that's like, yeah, we know for some people, too much prebiotic, too much fiber will make their gut worse. It's very well identified in the research literature. So in that case, we might say, hey, let's bring down your fiber. Let's go on a low FODMAP diet, which reduces things like broccoli, cauliflower, avocado. And for those people, that often will be a home run. Now, anywhere within these, getting fermented foods in the diet is a great way to start getting probiotics into the system. And that will resolve some issues for people. We tend to use probiotics just because it's very easy for people to consistently get in the desired dose. And with probiotics, there is a dizzying number of supplements. And as we've been studying the literature on this for, gosh, seven years plus, and I mean, we read and when I say we, it's me and a research team who are just waiting for studies to be published and sifting through them. And we do a monthly podcast called Probiotic Research Updates just to share what we've learned. <laughs> and when you take when you take that meta view, it simplifies things a lot. And you know, there, there's a I think the quote's by Einstein: "If you can't explain the problem simply, you don't understand the problem enough." And so in this case, the probiotics get simple when you see that. Most formulas used are one of three types. It's either a soil-based probiotic, and I'm sure your audience might be familiar with that. It has a lot of um, recognition in keto, paleo sort of communities. So soil-based organisms that you get from the environment, many of the species here are, are various bacillus, bacillus subtilis, bacillus lichenformis, bacillus coagulans. So that's one type of probiotic. Another one is actually a fungus, um, Saccharomyces boulardii. And then a third is your more traditional, which has blends of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. This is your really sort of traditional probiotic, been around the longest, been researched for the longest. And when you look across research studies, most of them are either one of these formulas or maybe a combination of the two. So what that can allow you to do is really simplify and step one level more educated than just looking for different formulas. 
and say, hmm, I'm going to try a categorical type, right? So the formula doesn't really, again, doesn't really matter because you'll see different trials with similar but different formula, right? It's, it's all some mixture of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. It's all some mixture of bacillus. And we have the data now because there's so many studies showing, you know what? Either one of these formulas works for constipation, for issues with mood, for diarrhea, for SIBO. So you get off of the sort of product merry-go-round and you say, I'm going to try one quality formula that's a blend of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. And if that's helpful, then, you know, if, if one formula resolves your symptoms, then you're done. But in a lot of cases, what you'll see is you get a 20, 30, 40% bump, and then we'll add in the second type, the Saccharomyces boulardii. Maybe we get another 20% bump, and then we'll add in the third, and maybe we'll get another 20% bump. And we call this triple therapy, meaning we're combining the three different sort of pillar formulas, and at least with what we've been able to see anecdotally in the clinic, this seems to work better than just one formula alone. And we have shared a few case studies on our website and our YouTube channel, wherein you see exactly this happen. Someone gets some benefit from one. When they combine all three, they get even more benefit. Um, and that's it's kind of the long short on probiotics. Again, the one thing I'd just advise people on is do not select your probiotics based upon the marketing materials the company puts in front of you. Because that's all going to be spin about how this special species, this special strain, and there are comparative trials now that literally take two different formulas for the same condition and show the same outcome. Now, the, the pressure, the market pressure here is... The companies that funded the research study, they're doing a good thing and then they want to sell you or they, they, they want to educate you on why that formula is good. And that's okay. But if you only look at that, what ends up happening is you go to this one probiotic and read all about how awesome it is. You go to another probiotic page, you read about how awesome that product is. And then people don't have any sort of guiding system for how to use these on the macro level. And so again, get one quality formula, of each type, try them one at a time. You can combine all three and it can take up to two to three months to realize the peak benefits from probiotics. So you want to give yourself a little bit of time and then reevaluate. And for a lot of people, diet plus probiotics will resolve their gut issues. Yeah. And, and, and so with probiotics, you know, I would ask you, is this the sort of thing with, uh, I get on the probiotic, am I on it forever? Or is there sort of a way, you know, so if my gut, in other words, is deficient in, you know, healthy bacteria, I take some probiotics, do I get my stomach where it's supposed to be and then I can stop taking it or am I on it forever? Yeah, yeah the, it's it's really usually the latter. And if we understand some of the mechanisms of probiotics, it helps us understand why these are sort of temporary. They reduce inflammation. They reduce leaky gut. They correct dysbiosis, meaning imbalances in the community of bacteria. They correct small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. They improve motility and they even have an effect on the brain. Some studies have shown a reduction of activation of the limbic system using probiotics. So when you get all these things firing correctly, the system comes back online, right? 
And so now these self-perpetuating feedback loops that you don't want to have happening, leaky gut, inflammation, limbic reactivity, more leaky gut, more inflammation, more reactivity that just kind of self-perpetuates, we interrupt and unwind these cycles. And that's maybe why it can take two to three months for peak benefits to be hit because it's not like an Advil, right? It's not like we're, we're just going to shut down the nociception. We're going to really be repairing and getting the system to come back online via all these mechanisms. And once we do, almost like someone who has had chronic shoulder pain, right? It might take a few months for the rotator musculature to get back in balance. And now I can bench or do whatever I want without problems. And as long as my exercise plan is in balance, meaning your diet's in balance would be the analogy here, you shouldn't drift back into rotator cuff imbalances and therefore pain. Now, if you ever did, let's say there was a, a destination wedding and you just went ham and you get back <laughs> and you're saying, Ugh, my gut's yeah. a little bit a little bit dicey. You could always go back on a probiotic for a month or so. Um, but generally speaking, you fix the imbalances and then you have the core foundational dietary and lifestyle measures in place. You should be able to maintain those benefits in perpetuity. Yeah, that's cool. And I would wonder too, you know, in terms of if someone does kind of feel like they need to stay on it forever, well, it's like, you know, well, the carrots don't come in from the garden with dirt on them anymore. The, the dairy has been homogenized, you know? So it's just like, you mentioned the sauerkraut and the fermented foods, but I think also we're just probably just getting so many less probiotics mm. than we, than we did once upon a time, right? When we had the milkman yeah, in the and, home garden. And, and for some people, I mean, they, may have had early antibiotic use as a child. They may have been breastfed. They may have had a lot of stress. They might need some sort of support, right? Some men do better when they get older on some TRT. Some women do better on either some estrogen or herbals that help to modulate estrogen. Some hard chargers do better during times of stress with ginseng, right? So we have all these things that can help the human organism perform better. And that's okay. As long as we're operating underneath the paradigm of aiming for the minimal effective dose, because this is an antidote to the other thing to be wary of what I call supplement creep, right? You take one person, draw a line of their life over a three-year period. They're going to be learning and adding CoQ10 and prebiotic and probiotic and all these things. And if there's no exercise of identifying minimal effective dose, then it's like, holy shit, John, you're on 25 supplements. That one's an upper, that one's a downer, that one's a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. This to sleep, this to wake up, this to be sad, this this to be emotional, that one to be uh, less emotional. Yeah, yeah, we got to be careful about that. <laughs> oh, very cool. Well, hey, uh, we... We started the podcast. You were you were kind of telling us about this new bar you created. I'm curious about this. I'm always looking for mm. things to have in the car or what have you, and I would be super curious. What did you choose to put in this energy bar that you made or protein bar? Um, yeah, yeah. Give us the scoop. It's it's just it's it's really simple. So it's some healthy fats as MCT. It's a whey protein, you know, clean, cold processed, and it's naturally sweetened, meaning with natural sugars, and that's it. And what makes this novel is almost all of the protein bars on the market, because I think they're trying to be overly attentive to maybe calories or carbs. They're using high levels of calorie-free prebiotic laden sweeteners, which aren't a problem in and of themselves, but for a fair number of, uh, of people, they'll cause bloating, indigestion, reflux, loose bowels, myself included. 
right? Coming back to the example of uh, the, the the diarrhea bars, right? You know, many of the bars in the market, I can do one per day. I have more than one and it's not terrible, but I'm noticing something. When we put this bar together and I got the initial sampling back, I said, right, I'm going to just full send on this. I'm going to have six in a day because <laughs> I wanted to, you know, I wanted to make sure I was testing against the most sensitive people in our audience. So I'm not highly sensitive, but for someone who is my one bar might be their six, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or my, my six bars might be their one rather. Um, and no GI issues. So it's just, it's just a good, clean whole food bar that uses natural sweeteners that contain some sugar, but natural sugars, but because we're not using artificial sweeteners or the prebiotic sweeteners like inulin, fructooligosaccharides, galactooligosaccharides, you don't get the GI side effects. Love that. And I'm just glad, I'm glad you use whey protein. You know, we're getting, you know, I'm all for certain plant proteins and moderation and whatever, but now it's just gone so widespread. Everyone's kind of running and hiding from whey and it just, it's the best protein. Yeah. It's just like, agreed. Uh, and you know, I wanted to share a quick story with you. So we, we moved to Europe for a year in uh, 2020 and before we left, you know, I would occasionally like after yoga or something, like go to whole foods and I would get the keto cups. Like there are these chocolate coconut oil, um, you know, little, little dessert yep. things. When we got back from Europe, they don't have any of that crap in Europe. So when we got back, I was like, <laughs> I, I was like, oh yeah, like I've been dying for Fantastic. one of these for a year. Absolutely demolished my stomach. Yeah. And a lot of allulose. They use a lot of allulose. Yeah. And it was like all of a sudden, I think they changed the recipe while we were gone, but it's like there's now like 10 or 15 grams of this fiber in each one. And it's just, it just demolished my gut. So yeah, I think we're on the path, especially to keep maybe carbs low or, you know, impact carbs low or keep things keto. It's like, again, it's sort of like the, when you're, when you're afraid you run faster, we end up consuming these things that can just demolish our guts. So man. Yep. Yep. Totally. Yeah. And you know, if, if you're hitting all the principles correctly, you shouldn't be overeating. I don't think the bar is the reason you're overeating nor is it going to be the solution to the overeating, right? It's the person who might have poor circadian rhythming. They may not be exercising enough. They might be fasting too much. They might be too low carb. They might need to do some fasting, right? For some people doing an OMAD once per week, that can help sort of reset their satiation signaling. But yeah, I, I don't think we can say, well, I'm going to overeat, but I'm going to eat these foods that don't absorb a lot and then expect it to manifest nowhere, right? And usually where it manifests is the GI. Yeah, right on. All right, Doc. Well, hey, thank you so much. This has been a really enjoyable podcast. Where can people find you? Yeah, same here. Thank you for having me. It's, it's been a real fun chat. Wow. Um, DrRusho.com, D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. I've written a book. I have a podcast, a YouTube channel, social media, you know, the uh, all the stuff if people want to plug in and uh, follow any of the work that we're doing.